is found in Genesis 1, verses 24 through 28, and that's on page 1 in the Pew Bibles. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that, behold, that moves on the earth. The New Testament reading is found in the Gospel of Luke. Chapter 19, that's on page 878 in your pew Bibles, beginning with chapter 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable, because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minus more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has more will be given. Everyone who has more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is the word of the Lord. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, may we be a thankful people. May we understand the goodness of the gospel, that you gave us 
everything when we deserve nothing. Lord, may this offering be a sacrifice. And may we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice for the glory of your name. Amen. You may be seated. J.P. Phillips has a TED Talks about the magical science of storytelling. In it, he tells the story of this man who went on eBay and bought at random 200 items. Each item he bought was he purchased for a dollar or less. After he purchased these 200 items, he found 200 authors, each to write a story about each item. He turned around and then tried to sell each item on eBay. For instance, one of the items that he bought was a plastic horse's head. A very odd-looking horse's head at that. But when he tried to sell this horse's head, which he purchased for 99 cents, he attached this story that the author wrote. And then he sold this plastic horse's head for $60. So what do you think happened? He had 200 items with 200 stories. He put them all on eBay. He spent a total of $120 on all these items. He made $8,000 on eBay. Each story gave the object value. Each story made that object significant. This story, though it has nothing to do with our passage, teaches us the value of a story. Throughout Scripture, we constantly see areas where writers don't simply say, you should believe this, or you shouldn't believe this. But what the narrators do is they show you. They tell a story of what you should believe. Very rarely outside of the epistles do we have, do this, don't do this. And Jesus shows us. He instructs us through telling a parable. And this parable is supposed to capture our imagination. It's supposed to create deep longing inside of us. He tells a story of a nobleman, or if you have the NIV, a man born of noble birth. And why does he tell this story? Well, with this story, we're going to look at three things. First, we're going to look at why Jesus told the story. Second, we are going to look at the who. Who are the characters of this story? Who do they represent? Who are we supposed to be in the story? And lastly, we will look at the what. What are we to believe because of this story. But before we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for sustaining us throughout the night, for the ability to rise another morning. Lord, may everything we do give you honor and glory. Lord, we pray for our church. 
We thank you that Billy Griggs is here this morning. Thank you for giving him strength. We pray for Jim Bennington, who is in the hospital. Lord, give the doctors wisdom on how to treat him. Be with him. May he know by the love of this church, the love that you have for him. We pray for Martha Ballard. Lord, go before Carol and Rob in this situation. May you find a place that will serve her and love her as an image bearer. We pray for Sydney Wickens that she might recover from her knee surgery. We pray for Donna Osborne's mother, Why, as her body continues to deteriorate. May we show our love to Donna and her family. And we lift them up in prayer because you hear us. Lord, we pray, pray for Vicki Anderson and her cancer treatment. Give her strength. Give her doctor's wisdom on how to care for her. We pray for Tony Hunt and the passing of his mother, Mary Jo. Lord, may we come around them and mourn with them because we hate death, but yet we have hope of the resurrection to come. Lord, we pray for this community that we live in. Lord, bless the people that are around us. Make yourself known to them. Call them to yourself. May you open their ears, open their eyes, and give them a new heart. We pray for Grace Community Church, our sister church in Cordova. Lord, they were without a pastor. They are losing members. Lord, please bless this church. May they be founded upon the preaching of the word and the sacraments. May they have an earnest zeal and love for you and their community. Lord, we pray for our country. As has happened this week, we had the State of the Union address, and it reminds us of so many things. But Lord, we do not rest in the sovereignty of this country, but we rest in your sovereignty and providence. We pray for church planters such as John St. Martin in Fargo, North Dakota, who will have their first members take their vows this Sunday. What a glorious time in the kingdom of God that the word is being preached, that people are being baptized and taught Lord, we pray for your world. Lord, 100% of what Christ Presbyterian does goes to missions. Whether discipleship or Sunday school or small groups or during our Lord's Day worship. But may we pray that you call from among us some to go to the nations. So that every tongue tribe, and nation can know their Savior. We thank you for the Shibe family, for Mark and Lisa as you call them to go serve in Northern Ireland. 
May they serve your church well. May they love on the pastors there that are becoming burnt and tired and weary. Lord, you hear us. Bless our time together this morning. Speak to us. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. On July 21st, 1969, news that had initially been reported on a live television broadcast came the next day as the headlines in the newspapers. Apollo 11 had landed on the moon. The Kennedy Space Center has over 400 domestic and international moon landing newspaper publications from that one day. It was what we would call breaking news. Much like the Apollo 11 headlines, Jesus in this parable actually uses a story that would be well known by everyone in the region. Josephus, a Roman Jewish scholar who is also a historian, tells us the story of Archelaus, the son of King Herod the Great. Josephus tells us the story that in 4 BC, King Herod died while in Jericho. Acrelius assembled an entourage and departed to Rome to ask the one person who had the authority, the one person that could make him king like his father, Caesar Augustus. But Archelaus met opposition when he arrived in Rome. He discovered that his own family, family members came to claim the throne. He also saw that there was a delegation of 50 Jews and Gentiles from Jerusalem that went to Caesar Augustus to say, do not make him king. And Josephus also records that 8,000 Jews living in Rome came and opposed him before Caesar. After days of deliberation, Augustus announced that Archelaus would be named Ethnarch, a lesser god given to vassal kingdoms who did not rise to the level of king. Herod the Great was the king that we hear about in Matthew 2, about the birth narrative of Jesus. We hear about Archelaus in Matthew 2 also, when Joseph was coming back from Egypt, he did not go to Jerusalem because he was reigning there. His brother, Philip, who is known as Herod the Tetrarch, was the one who beheaded John the Baptist. So Jesus tells this parable with this headline news in the background. The news that this king went to Rome to gain his kingship. And yet he came back and he still wasn't a king. Jesus begins the story. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Jesus had his listeners' attention. The original audience would have struggled with this parable because they didn't understand that Jesus was speaking of himself. But as readers of the New Testament, and now readers 
of this parable, we see that Jesus is speaking rightly about the kingdom of God. And in many stories, you have heroes and villains, those being saved, those doing the saving. There's mystery, untold features, reoccurring themes, plot, story arc. But Luke informs us that Jesus tells this story for two reasons. In verse 11, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable. Because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was coming to appear immediately. Three times in Luke's gospel, Jesus foretells of his own death. Twice in Luke 9, and then again in Luke 18. Jesus tells this parable to his disciples because he has told them over and over, and he wants to prepare them. He's preparing them for his death. So if you have your pew Bibles open to page 878, this is actually in the top left-hand corner. In chapter 18, verse 31, Jesus is preparing them. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And they flogged him. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. But they did not understand. They, but they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them. And they did not grasp what he said. Jesus is preparing the disciples. Because Jesus himself is prepared to go to the cross. Now, this was a long time ago. But way back in Luke 9, John and I spoke about the turn that Jesus makes. In, nine, in chapter 9, verse 51, Luke writes, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set his face upon Jerusalem. From chapter 9 to here in chapter 19, Jesus is preparing to go to the cross. He again is preparing his disciples. So this is the first reason he tells this story. The second reason he told the story is because his disciples supposed that the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Now, like I said earlier, you should not be strangers to the, wor- to the language of the kingdom of God unless you've not heard me preach before. But most of you have a bell or a loud, obnoxious thing in your head every time you hear the preaching of God, that Jesus came to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. This is what he says in Luke 4. But his disciples still didn't understand. The kingdom of God is not coming in the ways it can be observed, is what Jesus says in Luke 17. The kingdom of God is upon you. Even in verse, or in chapter 21, Jesus tells them, also, when you see these things taking place, you will know that the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is at hand, for Jesus is getting ready to enter Jerusalem. Jesus was going to save sinners. 
Remember the story of Zacchaeus? Remember the story of the blind beggar? The last two stories we've looked at, Jesus had come and saved the sick. He saved the lost. The people were ready for the king, but they did not know how the king was coming. Jesus had been teaching about the kingdom since he began his ministry. Yet the disciples still did not know what to expect. This is how Paul puts this act of going to Jerusalem, this act of going to the cross. Don't look it up, just listen to it. Paul says in Galatians 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you no longer are a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Does that language sound familiar? Abba, Father. These are the words of Christ upon the cross. Do you know why the king came? He came for you. He came to preach the good news of the kingdom to save you. Our king came to save his people. He came for us. Do you believe in this Jesus? Do you believe in this great act of love? Do you believe that God sent his only begotten son so that you can become an heir. This is the theme of our next hymn, and we're not getting ready to sing. I'm not done yet. But as we sing that hymn, this is why Jesus came. He was pierced for our transgressions. He bore our sins, the anointed, the Son of Man and the Son of God, so that we might become heirs. This is why Jesus is preparing his listeners. He's getting ready to leave. He's preparing them for his death and ultimately his resurrection. And then the ascension to the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. But there's so much more because he will come back. As he said in the story. So now we can ask the question of who? Who are we in this story? So there are several characters in the story, and we're going, to go, we're going to look at each character so we can try to identify who are we in the story. First, we meet the servants. Jesus, or the nobleman, called his servants and gave them ten minutes and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But then we are introduced very quickly in verse 14 to another group. Let's read verse 14. But his citizens, the noblemen, his citizens hated him 
and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. Does that sound familiar? We have servants and we have citizens who hated him. But within the story, there are two different kinds of servants. Please read with me verse 15. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your minna had made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful and very little. You shall have authority over ten cities. The second came, saying, Lord, your minna has made five minas more. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your minna, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit. You reap what you did not sow. Now, there's a lot that can be said about these servants. There's a lot, actually, that can be said about the minas. A minna was a wage that was worth about 10 weeks of work, so about a three-month's wage. And what does the king charge them to do? He charges them to engage in business until I came, until I come. And we see the first two servants did exactly that. In fact, they did very well. I'm no business junkie, but anyone that can take one minute and make 10 with an increase of 1,000% seems like they're doing a pretty good job in business. The second took one and increased it by 500%. And the king gave these servants a responsibility and a task. And when he returned, they were faithful. For their actions, the king says to the first one, well done, faithful servant. And to the second, you will be over five cities. Yet while the story gives attestation to the faithfulness of these two servants, the story isn't actually about the two servants. It's about the other one. And this is the crux. The other one said, For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. What you did not sow. And here we have it. The unfaithful servant's response. L listen, listen again to that response. I didn't do what you commanded me because you. That's not a good start. What does that remind you of? In Genesis 3, after God asked Adam, who told you that you were naked, or naked for some of you? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me. That's not a good start to any response. The servant was blaming the master. Yet if we look further at the servant's answer, we begin to see the purpose of the story. And what the servant's response tells us 
about the servant. For I was afraid of you because you were a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you do not sow. Let me ask you. Does this remark tell us about this master in this story? Where has this master been severe? Where has this master taken what he did not reap? Before the master left, he gave them three months worth of money. And then he left. And when he came back, those who were faithful with the money, he took ten minas, a thousand days worth of money, and gave them ten cities. Does that sound severe? Does that sound unloving? This story does not tell us that this remark is foolish. This story shows us this this remark is foolish. When the master returned, what did he do with the faithful servants? He gave them more than what they deserved. He was not harsh. He was gracious. What is this third servant talking about? This passage shows us this third servant did not know the master. So the king condemned him for his own words. In verse 22, he said to him, I will condemn you for your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. And it's interesting that the king here says, you knew. You knew I was a severe man. Now, this word can be taken a couple different ways. It can be knowing as far as information or intimacy, knowing someone in an intimate way, or to know or understand how something works. But clearly, this servant did not know his master. For his master is gracious and kind. He doesn't know the master at all. And so the king punishes him for his own words. His words revealed his true belief. His actions revealed his heart. So the master takes his men away and gives it to the servant who had ten. Now this just seems like good business, right? Five, one minna. And I have a servant who made one turn into ten, and one that took one and made it five. We're going to, good business people would give it to the one that makes ten, right? Which character do you sound like in the story? Are you a servant that the Lord has given a minute to and increased it? Or are you a servant that has taken the minna and hidden it? Because if this servant really was afraid of the master, the master tells him what he should have done. He should have at least put it into the bank and made interest. The servant did not only disobey. The servant showed that he was foolish. Many commentators say that this passage, the minna represents the gospel. That the servant's 
of the Lord Jesus Christ are all given the same message and that this gift we have, we are supposed to expand it and increase it in the kingdom of God. And while I do not disagree with this analogy, I don't think it's big enough. Think of our Old Testament reading. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. and Let them have dominion over the fish and the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping things that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In his image, God created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish and the sea and over the birds and over the heavens and over everything that moves on the earth. What was Jesus entrusting his servants to do in his absence? I believe what this passage is teaching us is that we need to look all the way back to Genesis 1 to understand what Jesus is leaving his servants with. He wants his servants to have dominion. He wants his servants to work with what he has given each of us. The gospel truth is that this is much bigger than an idea of just merely the words of the gospel. Yes, we should take the gospel and take it everywhere. Yet, God has called all of us to work, to labor in the fields. And here, that's both literally and figuratively. He's called us to be good lawyers, to be good teachers, to be good, honest businessmen and women, to be good doctors who nurture fellow image bearers, to be good stay-at-home moms and fathers, to be good artists, to be good assistants, to be good employees, to be good students, to be good children. God has called us to that from the beginning of the world. All of these things our Lord and King have given us to be stewards of. In every one of these situations, we are called to take the good news of the kingdom into where we have dominion as vice regents, as co-heirs. But because of our sin, we are no longer to do this on our own. But this story reminds us of hope. Because our king is already king and he's already reigning. And he will return. And when he returns, he will not return as though he's some lesser king. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 2. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. To God be the glory. Does that sound like a co-regent? Or does that sound like a king? And yet the gospel reminds us that we do not receive these good gifts based upon our own works. 
as we see and think of our own failures, as we see lost opportunity, as we see ourselves mishandling that which God has given us, the gospel reminds us that Christ is risen today. That he has poured upon us the Holy Spirit, and without it, we can do nothing. Think about what the good servant said about the ten minas. He said, the ten minas have become ten more. Almost to say that he did nothing by himself. The mina actually did it by itself. This is how the Spirit works in our lives. It reigns inside of us, and it allows us to take the gospel to the nations. It allows us to be good businessmen and women. The Spirit allows us to love God. And because we have received this gift of the Spirit, we have been given the ability through faith to be heirs of the covenant, to fulfill our creational order. The Spirit allows us to be good and faithful servants. Are you allowing this Spirit the Spirit of God, to work in your heart? Or are you suppressing the Spirit? Hiding it away? Because if you are, you will never really know who the King is. If you are suppressing it, you're believing a lie about our King. What do our words, what do our Actions reveal about our hearts. Are we being unfaithful? As I conclude, there's actually a third character in the story that I have not talked about yet, and they're referred to twice in this passage, in verse 14 and verse 27. These citizens who hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. And in verse 27, Jesus says, But as for these enemies of mine, we do not want, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. We don't like verses like that. That seems pretty severe, right, Jesus? This punishment does seem harsh. But this punishment also represents the punishment that we deserve for our sins. For this is exactly what happened to our king. Our king was slaughtered on the cross to redeem us. He took this punishment that we deserved upon himself. If you reject this king, if you don't desire that the king of creation reign over you, this passage is a warning to you. Christ's atonement upon the cross is easy to come by because it's freely offered in the gospel. Come to him by faith. Repent and believe. Repent and claim your dominion in the kingdom of God. Our king is gone, but he is near. Our king is gone, yet he is the one true 
king. Jesus told us this story because those listening knew that the Messiah would come in power. But they did not know how he would receive this power through the cross. Do you know this gracious king who is not severe, who is not harsh? For this is the description that Moses gives of our king. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third to the fourth generation. This is our king of glory. And he loves us. For he bore our sin for us. And this is yours. You become kingdom agents through faith in the promises 